Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me for this week's episode is Matt Phillips, VP and Head of Financial Services for the UK and Ireland at Diebold Nixdorf. Uh, welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me on. It's, uh, it's great to have you on. The pleasure is all ours. This week, for anyone listening, we're going to be asking you, are you being self-served? The ways that users are interacting with their banks and financial services firms is changing on a day-to-day basis. As much as we hate to use the term digital acceleration, it is occurring around us. But just in what way is that acceleration headed? We'll be answering open-ended questions just like that one in part two. But first, as always, we start with our news and numbers segment. This is where We've gone out and found some news stories with intriguing or interesting numbers involved in the headlines to chat about. It's traditional that our guest goes first. So, Matt, what story has uh, caught your attention in the news lately? Thanks, Alex. So I found a really, really interesting article, actually, that was written by one of your colleagues, reference MasterCard, and the fact that they've now come out and said that by 2033, they will uh, the mag stripe, the magnetic stripe that we see on all of our Uh, credit and debit cards today, uh, will no longer be there. So they're going to start phasing that out. So from from my perspective, Alex, it caught my attention because it's something that we've known and loved on our cards for many years. I think uh, it's been around since the 60s, so even before my time. But um, I suppose it sort of raised a couple of things in my mind around the theme of ageing technology in banking, and and maybe I'll make a a couple of comments on that specifically. But I think the article makes reference to the fact that, you know, for security reasons, that, that's probably the main rationale for starting to phase out the mag stripe. Um, and it got me thinking in terms of when was the last time I, in the UK, carried out a card transaction where, you know, obviously we're so familiar with contactless these days that the next port of call, if you're over the limit, is your chip and pin. And if for some reason that the technology doesn't work, that then you are asked to use your mag stripe. And for the life of me, I couldn't remember the last time I used it. So I think it's fair to say, even in smaller retail outlets, I'm struggling to remember the last time I was asked to use my MagStripe. I don't know whether, Alex, you share that same experience. Oh, no, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think associate the use of the magnetic strip on my cards solely with every time I've been to America, essentially. Yeah, and, um, and that's that's the valid point, isn't it? And I and it's remiss of me to think that, obviously, MasterCard being a global brand, that everything should be based around what we, what we know and love in the UK. Uh, so it's a fair point that some countries haven't adopted chip and pin as widely as, as they have done in the UK, and I think that's probably why they're giving themselves quite a decent run-up at uh, getting rid of the mag stripe completely but if we were to you know think about cards initially and, and i know Diebold nixdorf were often associated with with cash and i'm sure we'll talk about that in the next section but i actually believe that we'll probably see cards go before we uh, before we see cash go we're so f- so familiar these days with using our phones and other digital payment means that, that I, I think cards taking up valuable space in our wallets will probably go mm. before we start losing notes. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that the magstripe has become one of those things which I think is, is ubiquity that isn't necessarily a necessity. And although obviously in some areas, and especially like we've already mentioned in the US where places still only accept check, uh, payment systems are lagging behind a little but when we're emerging into an era when we have multiple different redundant systems for payments whether that's chip and pin whether that's contactless whether that's using even switching between cards on the fly if one happens to be not working at the time 
just swiping left or right on an app to, to switch to a new one. I think that by definitely by the time we hit 2033, I think, uh, well, I would hope that the that people will have felt safe and secure in the knowledge that they can use things like chip and pin and contactless without having to worry about moving back to the mag stripe. Indeed, indeed, I completely agree. And um, and even though we could argue it's legacy technology in the UK, it's still a, a technology burden for the industry that has to continue to use that as maybe a a backstop in the time being. So I think there's a win-win all around there as we start to phase that out. Yeah, exactly. And uh, well, we're going to be sticking with payments for my news numbers this week, which is, uh, well, the, the number is 20 million. And that is the the number of US-based users, which Swedish buy now, pay later firm Klarna has accrued. Uh, that's a doubling of its US customer base in the last 14 months. It now maintains around 4 million monthly active US users. And according to Annie, its daily downloads surpassed the closest BNPL competitors by more than 20%. Um, it spent a lot of money attempting to crack the US. Its attempts down to a, a 93 million pound loss in 2019 funded a lot of that. Uh, with, and losses are widening as it attempts to, to breach into the market even more. But it shows uh, that it's had a, a popularity explosion, you know, at, along with most BNPL systems. The firm raised, as we covered before on FinTech Futures, 640-odd million earlier this year for a, a valuation of around 44 or $45 billion, I believe, dollars that is, um, which makes it one of the top three most valued privately held FinTechs. Um, and it's planning to go public next year. But this is an interesting case because obviously in America, it's uh, breaking into a, a market which has extremely high credit card penetration as opposed to places in Europe. And uh, Klarna has sort of gone on uh, and it's and it's like have gone on a sort of charm offensive against credit recently. And the day that we're recording this, some uh, people have come, hit back at Klarna and it's attempts to say that its BMPL system is better than using a credit card in terms of helping people stay out of debt. But that's, this is something we've covered before. But I, I really think it's uh, without having to go into the whole is BNPL good, is BNPL bad versus credit. I think, Matt, this sort of uh, shows that although Klarna's got an aggressive marketing campaign in America, that there is user demand for these kind of uh, solutions. Completely agree. It's just a, a new segment, I think, in, in the overall payments landscape or ecosystem that is just set to explode. And I think we'll see similar penetration in the UK market over time. You're absolutely right to reference, you know, the sort of counter arguments around uh, people that default on, on the credit that, that Klarna affords them. But, but you know, we're not to talk about that today. I think it's just, you know, another payment means that I guess as a consumer, I don't think we've ever faced so much choice about how we choose to pay for our goods and services. So so I'm, I'm all for new technology coming into the market, so long as it is, uh, of course, appropriately regulated, but clearly offering more choice and convenience to customers. Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is our more interview styled section where we focus the discussion and talk about a specific industry topic or sector. We're going to dive into our main topic, self-service banking, in just a second. But first, I'm going to give Matt a minute or two to give us a rundown on Diebold Nixdorf, uh, a little bit more about his role and uh, any sort of recent news. So take it away, Matt. Thank you very much, Alex. Yeah, so my name is Matt Phillips, as, as you said at the start of the podcast. Uh, and I'm lucky enough to represent Diebold Nixdorf in the UK and Ireland across our retail banking and financial services business. 
For those that, uh, that aren't familiar with Diebold Nixdorf, what we provide to financial services is a range of solutions aimed at you know, really driving and enhancing the way that, that our traditional banks and some of the lesser known banks serve and meet the needs of our customers. Some of that is unpicking the legacy technology that some of our customers are, are struggling to, to get hold of and change and enhance to meet the ever-increasing needs from the consumer point of view, and really helping drive their, their customer engagement forward, be that in self-service, which we're traditionally known for, but also across anything that is related to the branch and, uh, and digital ecosystem. So Diebold Nixdorf doesn't just provide the hardware and the self-service devices that you may use on a daily basis. We also provide the software that, that hooks into the back end, and we also provide the payment services, as well as on the street services, shall we say, so engineers going out and fixing these things in the event they do go wrong. So hopefully that's uh, that's given you an insight into what DN does specifically in the UK and Ireland for our customers. Yeah, brilliant. Fantastic. Thanks, Matt, for that, that overview. Now, we're going to be talking about self-service banking. And for those uh, interested, Fintech Futures has recently completed a report into self-service banking. You can check that out on our website, authored by myself. He says, leading himself perilously close to discussion, making him sound like an export expert. Um, and I just want to, I want to start off by saying, you know, that self-service banking is a term that's been around for a long time. People who may have talked about it five to 10 years ago would have most likely been talking about usage of ATMs. But now people are referring to it across the gamut of technology from using an online banking portal to an app on your phone. So, I mean, People say that banking isn't going to be all about self-service, but surely it, it's all banking is self-service today, you know? So I think it's a great opener for this part of the podcast, Alex. And, and I think it's a logical and fair question, especially, you know, we can't uh, probably go for 10 minutes these days without referencing the pandemic, which I'll do now. But, but fundamentally, <laughs> you know, I think that theme of self-service has probably become even more relevant through the pandemic where access to certain services and, and let's face it, some of those being branch banking has been reduced, if not limited. So, you know, our adoption of other means of carrying out our banking transactions on an individual basis has been significantly increased. But that term, have we become self-service uh, orientated? I'd say it's probably more self-initiated than self-service from start to finish and the reason I say that is that probably one of my frustrations with the industry really is that you know the level of proactivity um, that we see given these institutions hold uh, more data on us than, than we probably care to think about a lot of the engagement is self-initiated and I'd like to see that shift to more proactive engagement from our banking service providers but I think um, just dwelling on self-service for a minute I think had we not had self-service capability through the pandemic, then people would have struggled even more to access certain services. And I think whether we started thinking about certainly self-service in banking from a cash perspective, but I think as we, you know, we all shop as well and go into retail outlets, our familiarization and comfort using self-service has just gone from strength to strength. And and certainly from time to time, depending on what mood I'm in, actually, it's a preference of mine to use self-service, just surely because of the, uh, the speed and convenience. But I think what we'll see, Alex, is more reliance on self-service for those non-cash transactions. So long as we can get over the hurdles of, uh, you know, identification, ID and V, that probably prohibit some of those transactions being put through self-service today. 
as long as we can see those things being overcome, I think we'll see more and more reliance on self-service, especially as, let's face it, uh, you know, the number of branches that we can access has reduced significantly over the last five years. I think in 2015, we had nearly 13,000 branches in the UK. And at the end of 2021, I think we'll just over 7,000. So quite a significant drop. But that said, you know, whether it's using digital services to mitigate those branch reductions, or indeed, as is the case, using self-service terminals to complete not just those cash transactions, but other banking things as well. I think we'll see more and more of that coming into the market. It's, it's interesting you mentioned there about the difference between self-initiation and self-service. And I think that uh, it sort of comes across, and you, you mentioned, of course, the banks holding reams and reams of data. And you sort of think of, most people would think of their bank as a, a specialist in certain things, you know, in, in the mortgage, in providing a deposit-taking account, a savings account with, uh, uh, well, let's not say an attractive interest rate, but... Um, <laughs> As, as, as what you, you could possibly count as an interest rate um you know people people's needs are diverse and we've seen actually from from a lot of uh especially fintech companies right now are trying to meet as many needs as possible by becoming generalists and the word super app is bandied about a lot and obviously when we talk about banks having these huge troves of data you can sort of look at them as potential uh not necessarily becoming in-your-face super apps, but they have the back office capabilities to do so. But do you, do you think that's the answer? Do you think becoming a super app, offering everything to everyone, everyone is, is the solution, or is it better to, to become a specialist in certain areas? I think, Alex, it's a, it's a great question and something that I, I ponder probably far too much. Uh, a bit sad, really. But I think um, actually the answer is that you have to do both, or unfortunately, as the case may be. And so we can look at at super apps, and I I didn't pick that one for the the buzzword jail later, but um, (laughs) but actually now you mentioned it, maybe I should have done. But, uh, you know, I think um, we are going to see more and more of that type of partner-led ecosystem being surfaced through our financial services provider. And we can look to probably some of the other geographies, for examples, that, that do it very, very well. And and again, that's probably driven by some of the retail experience we have. I know, for example, that through the WeChat app, which was developed for you and I to exchange messages, you know, you can now book tickets, order a takeaway, conduct various other uh, retail transactions and payments. And I think consumer demand is certainly moving more and more in that way. But we can't forget that the mainstay of the population still carry out billions of, of simple transactions on a daily basis that you have to get right. They have to feel convenient, seamless and secure. And so you can't specialise at the the detriment of the generalisation out there from a a standard transactional perspective. But that that phrase specialisation or or becoming a specialist, I think that is right. And and what I want, and I think what a lot of people want, is the, the provider that we bank with to become a specialist in me so that they can surface to me personalised recommendations on a proactive basis, knowing my payment history, knowing the trends of where I shop and what I like to do with my money to really make a difference to to what I'm going to do from a financial health perspective moving forward. Mm, I mean, I I think that also brings up another good point. We talked about, you talked about um, WeChat and another aspect of the, the super app 
uh, zeitgeist, you might say, is the mm. is is front end experience, and that's often the the USP for a lot of fintechs now. A lot of firms come out, and the, a lot of we see a new challenger bank every week offering a, a, an innovative and new way of users to uh, access their financial services. Mm. But um, we also see on the other end of the of the spectrum, banks uh, and financial services often have to take the, the large regulated banks often have to take a more cautious approach when it comes to providing new services, and in some cases, you know the, that front end experience can suffer in the favour of uh, of either reducing cost or avoiding cost or getting uh, a solution from to market quickly. Where you look back at the the concerns with PSD two and the implementation of strong customer mm. authentication, which led to a number of firms putting forward pretty bare bones front end stuff just to ensure that they they complied so how do firms strike a balance there from from both the fintech perspective and the banking perspective yeah it's again another great question and i think it's a real challenge is is the nub of it and and that is that is on the basis that you know first and foremost they have to make sure that any transaction and any interaction is incredibly secure and I don't think we can underestimate the time, money and resource spent on ensuring our financial security, which, of course, you know, we often take for granted. But and of course, you know, a lot of that is driven by the regulatory environment that you referenced there and, and how compliance is a is an ongoing and, and often ever increasing burden that, that, you know, that the banks have to deal with. However, if I think about the front end experience and the user experience, and if we were to look at trends from, from some of the other geographies, I genuinely believe that the consumer experience and the personalization that banks offer their customers will be the biggest differentiator in years to come in terms of whom I choose to bank with. And I know that as an industry and as a population, we, we tend not to, to move banks very often, but I do think we're going to see a lot more than that. I'm more so driven by, or than is currently driven by those that choose to move because a particular brand is is no longer closest to their home, which historically has been the number one reason for, for someone to choose who they're going to bank with. So I think there's there's a case for allocating significantly more funding to the consumer experience, but you have to be selective. There is no point just um, putting some gimmicks out there because we're all very savvy, especially when it comes to our own financial means and health. And so, uh, you know, if something surfaces to you as a great idea and, and turns out to be a gimmick or, or doesn't quite hang together from an end-to-end experience, then that's a challenge. Um, I equally believe that one of the biggest challenges that our you know, traditional banking environments have here is, is the number of channels in which they operate. So if you're a digital-only bank and a challenger bank in that regard – you've only really got one channel to, to think about. Whereas you, know, you take the traditional players who we're all familiar with, they've got a number of channels to think about. And actually, from a consumer point of view, I want consistency across no matter what channel I choose to interact with my bank on. And so, you, you know, they've got to bear that in mind. And so it's like, um, you know, I think the, the phrase oil tanker is probably used quite frequently but I think for a lot of the, the bigger banks, it is genuinely trying to steer an oil tanker to make rapid change. And that's where, quite frankly um, and bluntly, players like Diebold Nixdorf come in to drive agility into the traditional architecture and really accelerate the pace of change. Yeah, I, I do always, uh, I, I do love the, the oil tanker metaphor. I do remember someone uh, once said, you know, when you, when you, 
but when you when you turn an oil tanker in the right direction, you get it moving, then it can it can smash through pretty much every, anything it needs to. Uh, <laughs> That's a good one. Unless I suppose it gets stuck in the in the Suez Canal, but um, <laughs> which is a, 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 so stre- not stretch the metaphor too too far. But I think banks want to avoid that at all costs. Um, Indeed. So you mentioned it there a little bit about you know the the, the the adding agility and we mentioned legacy technology and the needs to meet ongoing regulatory compliance but mm. you know what um i'm going to sort of mishmash two questions here together and ask you know what what are the usual for, from the, the clients you've dealt with and things you've seen in the market what are what are the technology hurdles that the banks are trying to overcome right now uh large and small and what, what even are the technology hurdles that some fintechs are trying to overcome one of them obviously being being able to deploy a system that can get them to market really fast mm. and to that end also you know what is what is the the sort of the utopian flying cars ideal for self-service where where should we be looking to end up yeah yeah great great uh, great question and and I don't really have a short answer for you, Alex. Really, so um, but f- fundamentally, right. I'll settle in. <laughs> you, you know, you, you touch on two really key key elements, which which I guess uh, culminates the theme of, of what we've been talking about here. Not just the the overall customer experience, but how how can our banks and and financial service providers enable that through the technology? Because whether you're a, a challenger bank or a new bank coming into market, and yes, you've got to probably get over the the security and regulatory hurdles that, that of course, existing players have already overcome. But I think every provider out there has a desire to be agile, to be really efficient in terms of, you know, how they manage their cost base, to have a really rapid pace of change so they can surface and adopt new technology for our benefit as consumers, to offer you a consistent um, experience no matter what channel you, you, you know, you're operating through and to offer us as individuals insightful and, and personal and relevant offers and information. You know, that, that's a bunch of words there that when you boil it down into a technology strategy for an existing bank is cumbersome to say the least. I think in the last few years, we've all, and indeed on this call, you know, talking about Klarna, slightly different, but we've talked about payments and the disruption that payments and new payment methodologies coming into the industry, the effect that's having on, on our financial services providers. And I think if we were to look at a lot of the traditional banks here, you know, they've got technology that is often decades old that they need to unpick and change and integrate this brand new API driven sexy tech into into something that's 20 years old. That's not easy to say the least. And I think we see a couple of different strategies to overcome that. Some will, will, will go on an evolutionary journey, you know, so bit by bit trying to unpick that that monolith, if we, if we can call it that. Others will plug in new software from somebody like ourselves to pick off component parts of that and do things in a more in a more agile and cost-efficient manner. And others will effectively create a, a challenger bank in their own right, a spin-off that, that they'll start from scratch and, um, and over time then perhaps backport some of the the more cumbersome technology into the new technology when it's it's up and running it's approved and it's it's scalable to the right degree that you and i would would expect so there's a hell of a lot going on there and of course on an annual basis i'm sure we we're all driven by um how many times we look at our our smartphones or at least many of us are so what what's the latest tech that android and apple are bringing to market and how do we then need to 
adopt that as part of our banking journey. So they're all the, I guess, the technology things that CIOs are thinking about, along with fundamentally, how can they reduce the cost of providing the service such that they can protect the services to you and I for a long, for a much longer term. Um, and part of part of the the jigsaw there to to come on to the second part of your question is around you know the, the self service infrastructure that that many people have today. Um, and we all know and love it primarily for for going in and completing cash services. And the provision of cash services comes at a cost. There's talk, and, and I'm sure you've you've read about what the potential shared infrastructure should look like. You know, shared branches, shared banking, is that the way forward for the market? But actually, I think self-service at a principle has a much bigger role to play in all this. And again, we can take learnings from from some other geographies that have successfully deployed, you know, self-service that doesn't just complete your cash transactions, but completes a number of digital and non-cash transactions. And that doesn't mean for a for a minute that um, somebody's going to stand in a queue of people on a petrol forecourt where they, they just need to get some cash and talk to someone over video about a mortgage or a loan. But what we will see more of is these type of, I'll call them retail pods, if you like, pop up in arguably more convenient locations for you and I on an evening and a weekend where you can effectively sit down comfortably in front of a self-service machine. You could complete a video call with a mortgage advisor, a loan advisor, or somebody even just giving you some guidance on how to be more effective with your funds on, a, on an ongoing basis. So this more convenience and digital transactions coming into the self-service landscape. But fundamentally, the use of cash is going to be around for some time to come, as we all know, which is great. It is still arguably the most secure method of payment from a consumer perspective, and indeed, we cannot uh, forget, as Natalie Sini pointed out in her report some years ago, the two million people that rely on cash on a daily basis, um, on which basis they, they run their lives. So at a principal level, I believe that every bank should be deploying more and more cash recyclers on the basis that, uh, that clearly there is a sustainability and carbon footprint benefit. But fundamentally, Alex, in, in terms of summing up here as I whittle on, that I think more self-service becoming incredibly more or intensely more critical channel for the banks, offering not just cash transactions, but a, a whole range of digital transactions as well. We are in part three and it's time for the fintech jail where we ask for an industry term a buzzword or a trend our guest has seen or heard enough of we'll then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail uh, or if it's already in there we'll give it an extended sentence no matter how close to release it may be alternatively uh, a term could be argued out of the jail arbiter judge jury and fintech executioner but Matt, what, what buzzword or, or trendy topic do you wish was banished from the conference circuit? Yeah, so it's a great part of the call today. Um, so the word that I would like to uh, to put in the FinTech Futures jail is transformation. Let me give you uh, a little soundbite as to why I think that. Um, and I have to caveat here that it is from an industry viewpoint. 
And we have to remind ourselves, I think it's a good place to start, Alex, if we think about the definition of a word. So, so the definition of transformation is a complete change in appearance. Mm-hmm. And yet we find ourselves that the industry references transformation on an annual basis. I think, you know, most transformation that, that we see in the industry, I would not say appears on an annual basis. In fact, when I when I think back as to what is truly transformative in, I suppose, from a consumer standpoint, uh, the banking industry, uh, I struggle beyond the introduction of, of mobile banking, which, you, you know, being a brand new channel on which we operate, I'd argue that is transformative in nature, but we have to go back nearly a decade to think about when that was introduced, yet mm. it is still a term that is used on a on an annual basis. So PSD2, as you talked about earlier, open banking, you know, the industry said that was truly transformative, yet um, yet uh, as a consumer of that service, I would argue that it is a, it is a change. It is an enhancement. It has made things slightly better, but I would argue that transformation, it wasn't. If you want true transformation, then somebody like, uh, of course, DN can help in, in that regard, as we've discussed earlier on the podcast. But transformation is my is my word, and that's the case that I'm making, Alex. You're going to be, uh, you're going to be, I don't know whether you're going to be pleased or not about this, but transformation is already in the jail. I've just is it? Oh. <laughs> uh, season, season two, this season, episode 12, it got put in there. But however, that doesn't mean that you can't argue for it to be given an, an extended sentence. I don't believe we gave it much of a sentence the first time around because it was, uh, we get a lot of... Um, buzzwords in this industry that people like, like to say uh, that should be the default i think that's the the question the first time around the thing should by default be transformative otherwise what's the point um mm-hmm. you're coming at this from a sort of a different angle with this one yeah indeed indeed but um yeah apologies i didn't realize it was already in there i clearly didn't no no i mean like that that's the nature of the jail you you've you've turned up for its parole hearing and it's, it's sitting across across the the room from you with its hat in hands and uh you're banging the gavel to say no i don't think so yeah and it's it's a great it's a great word to capture people's imagination and to think that you know in an industry i i am going to be the recipient of something truly transformative and yet you know i'm yet to see in our market great examples of things that are truly transformative in nature Mm. I think that, um, well, two things before we close out this, this jail section, actually, Matt. I mean, the, f- the first one I'd say is, is there a technology out there that you would say it has the potential to be transformative? Um, I think if, I mean, I, I know we, we sort of joked earlier talking about the word super app and whether that should be, um, that yeah. should be in here. But again, playing on the theme of consumer experience, I genuinely believe that the apps that, uh, that banks use along with you know these digital journeys at self-service that will genuinely transform the way that people go about their banking if we were to offer let's say mortgages from a completely um, automated process as opposed to you know the very heavily paper-based system we have today that would be transformative and technology to support that and those uh, those examples is already out there and indeed we're already supporting some customers in doing just that in certain geographies so those would be uh, great transformative examples in my opinion okay and the fantastic and the, the, the i think that the, the only second thing i'd mention is that uh, because you know I, I can't mention it when having dn on is that uh, i think the only fintech jail candidate we've had where the case was dismissed was in fact cash back in episode nine in season one <laughs> um 
when we dismissed it because uh, you know people there, there will always be a reliance on quite right time. being. Well, that's all we have time for for this episode of What the FinTech. Thanks very much to Matt for joining me. But before we sign off, though, uh, we just have a chance to plug socials, websites, etc. Um, Matt, you you can go first. Have you got anything to plug? Yeah, sure. So, so look, if uh, if people are interested in to hear more about some of the things we've talked about today, then by all means, get in contact with me personally, Matthew Phillips on LinkedIn, or indeed you can register interest via our website, deboldnickstorf.com. Of course, other social media access is, is equally available. Excellent. And you can find me on Twitter at, at ADHamilton91 and on LinkedIn just by searching my name. I mentioned earlier in the podcast that Fintech Futures has recently released a report into self-service banking that can be found on our website at www.fintechfutures.com and just look under the report section. We'll also be releasing a new report into digitalization in banking and the idea of Fintech versus Fintech, the uh, perhaps the more boring version of Kramer versus Kramer. You can find Fintech Futures on Twitter at, at Fintech Futures and on LinkedIn just by searching for Fintech Futures and looking for our logo with the two Fs. If you like this podcast and any of our other episodes, then please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service of choice. As always, we appreciate it if any any of you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review, recommending us to a friend, tweeting us out on social media, or any variety thereof. Uh, as always, thanks to all of you for any and all support. We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye.